From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How does a community address its housing crisis? How about giving money directly to people experiencing homelessness? An ongoing research project explores that idea. There's ambition in the project that if this is effective, we would want to scale it up. And I would hope everyone in Denver and Colorado, if we can find a cost-effective, impactful way to support people who are experiencing homelessness, that we would want to scale that up. Then, tracking hate crimes in Colorado and why so many incidents go unreported. Plus, the new president of Front Range Community College makes history. I've always taken my tenure in community colleges to be about breaking down barriers. But more importantly, it's about representation for me. I want students to see me as a Black woman and say, this is achievable. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. How does a city address its housing crisis? How about giving money directly to people experiencing homelessness? That's the idea behind the Denver Basic Income Project. Next month, it begins the next round of research into whether this concept could make a real difference. And the city of Denver recently endorsed the idea using COVID relief money. Mark Donovan is the founder of the Denver Basic Income Project. Mark, welcome back. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks for having us. We are also joined by Britta Fisher with the Department of Housing Stability, a.k.a. HOST, and Daniel Brisson, a researcher at the University of Denver. Thank you all for joining us. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Mark, you came on the show last year to tell us about the project. What has changed since then? Well, we've been, we've been working hard. We've completed an initial trial serving 11 individuals with two partner organizations And we've started up a second trial with 28 individuals and eight partner organizations in preparation for our full launch, which is happening this fall. And we've just been working hard to make sure that we have the capacity and the ability to deliver this program really well. And as we've been learning, we've also just been delivering impact and and really supporting the individuals that have been participating in the program. And this program is unique in that it's being touted as the first study of its kind in the U.S., specifically researching the effect of giving cash directly to people experiencing homelessness. Can you tell us about that? It is. We were modeling after the work that was started in in Vancouver, the New Leaf Project that showed how impactful it could be to provide a basic income floor for individuals that are experiencing homelessness. And we've seen in other places the power of direct cash to provide hope and opportunity and to create the conditions for an accelerated path towards thriving. You mentioned a trial. How has that gone? It's gone really well. We haven't done formal research on the initial trials, but some of the feedback that we've gotten from 
participants has been that it's been transformational, that it's really made a huge difference in their lives. And we know that some individuals have achieved stable housing and that people have been paying down debt and have been able to accelerate their path towards a better situation. Mark, the Denver City Council recently approved a measure to give $2 million in cash payments to people experiencing homelessness. But there are some requirements. The person must be a woman, transgender, or gender nonconforming. Why were those distinctions important? I'd like to say that the Denver Basic Income Project is open to anybody that meets our criteria. And so while the city dollars are somewhat targeted because of the increase uh, in access to their shelters that they saw in specific communities over the course of COVID, the Denver Basic Income Project is a fully inclusive program. Britta, let's bring you into the conversation. Tell us more about how your organization will be playing a role in all of this. Yeah, we at the Department of Housing Stability have been working with Mark and the team at Denver Basic Income Project for some time to vet this as a possible investment. And it's part of how Denver is doing more than ever to address homelessness. And we think this is adding another tool to our housing toolbox. So this investment of $2 million of American Rescue Plan Act funds will really help us impact some of those most impacted by COVID-19 experiencing homelessness here in Denver. And I read that according to the annual point-in-time survey, a one-night count of people experiencing homelessness in Denver was 4,171 people in 2020. That's correct. And we've seen since then a 15% increase over the course of the pandemic to now nearly 4,800 individuals in the January 2022 point-in-time count. It's not surprising that a pandemic has worsened conditions for people experiencing homelessness and created more housing crisis in our community. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about how the project will actually be carried out in Denver? Of course. We'll start taking applications and then there will be a randomized selection process run by DU Center for Housing and Homelessness Research. And individuals will be placed into one of three groups. One group will receive $6,500 up front and $500 a month for the remaining 11 months of the program. A second group will receive $1,000 a month for 12 months. And then we'll have a comparison group that gets $50 a month for 12 months to give us a baseline against which we can compare and understand the results of the program. Now, why was it important to break the participants into these different groups? Well, the New Leaf Project did an upfront lump sum payment, but we're just not sure if if that's the best approach. And so, you know, this is a concept that hasn't been explored at any scale in the U.S. And so there's a lot of learning to be done. And so that's the point of it is to try a couple different ways of, of doing it and to see what the results are. I also read that the participants will be required to be signed up with social service agencies. What impact are you hoping that will have? Well, one of the elements we're looking at with the research that DU is doing is what the impact is of different service approaches. And so the partner organizations that we're working with are all well-established organizations that have been serving the community for decades. And we will be able to see which particular types of services have the best result. And we are going to try to learn as much as we can about how to do this better in the future and figure out how to deliver it in the most effective and impactful way. 
Daniel, you are from DU's Center for Housing and Homeless Research. Tell us more about the center's role in this project and what are you all expecting in terms of outcomes for the participants? Chandra, thanks so much. Yeah, I'm Daniel Brisson. I'm with the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver and the Center for Housing and Homelessness Research. We're conducting a randomized control trial, mixed methods randomized control trial. We'll hear stories and more narrative from people as well as, as Mark said, randomize people enrolled in Denver Basic Income Project into three cash groups. Um, I don't know that we have a ton of expectations. I don't think that's our role. We certainly have ideas about guaranteed basic income, and we look forward to analyzing the data from our research and drawing conclusions from that. Now, were you looking for certain traits in the participants? You know, you mentioned the screening process. Was there something you were looking for in terms of the profile of the participants? I'm not looking for anything particular in terms of the profile of participants. We're trying to gather a sample or or a sampling frame of folks that represents the population of people experiencing homelessness as best we can. That being said, there are limits on the number of resources we have available. So we've been really purposeful about working with recruiting and signing on community-based organizations that we feel are good partners in this work. Can you tell us a little bit more about the screening process? We are asking people if they've experienced homelessness the day prior. And then we're also asking people about their connection to a community-based organization and seeing if they have that. That's a criteria for enrollment in the study. And then we also have a criteria, which is we want to make sure that people with untreated and serious substance use or mental health issues who wouldn't really be able to participate meaningfully in the study aren't enrolled in the study. Essentially, we ask people a series of questions. This is really technical. It's from a screening instrument called the BASIS 24 about mental health and substance use. And we also ask people if they are receiving support or uh, treatment for that. And people with severe and untreated substance use or mental health issues will not be eligible for the Denver Basic Income Project. What will come of the findings? Oh, my goodness. Well, that'll depend on the findings, Chandra, but um, (laughs) hopefully lots of really good stuff. Hopefully one way or another, right? We learn a whole ton about what it means to provide people experiencing homelessness with uh, unconditional cash transfer for 12 months. And there's no denying that the hope or the there's ambition in the project that if this is effective, that we would want to scale it up. And I would hope everyone in Denver and Colorado, if we can find a cost-effective, impactful way to support people who are experiencing homelessness, that we would want to scale that up. So, Mark, when you look at this overall, what is the goal of the Denver Basic Income Project overall? I mean, our our mission is to serve unhoused people by examining the impact of direct cash distributions in an effort to encourage a healthier society centered around human thriving. So we're opposed to systematic barriers to rising out of poverty. We acknowledge that there are these challenges that are preventing people from thriving and that we believe that this is a a way that we can support 
and accelerate that path to thriving. And we're trying to build it on a foundation of justice, equity, diversity, inclusivity, and access, and acknowledge those, you know, those barriers and really push back on them. Well, thank you all for joining us. Chandra, thank you so much for covering this work. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Mark Donovan is the founder of the Denver Basic Income Project. Britta Fisher is Chief Housing Officer and Executive Director of the Denver Department of Housing Stability. And Daniel Brisson is a researcher at the University of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Latino voters in Colorado have tended to vote for Democrats by wide margins. But this year, Republicans think, or hope, they can peel away some of those votes. My main issues are going to be the economy. The infrastructure sucks. How we take care of the earth. Veterans benefits. I'm very concerned about my Second Amendment right. The CPR Politics podcast, Purplish, looks at the voters who can make the difference this season. Everywhere you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. Nearly 30% of adults in Colorado have experienced hate crimes in the last five years. That's according to a recent study that also finds that most of those incidents go unreported. Hate Free Colorado is a coalition of nonprofits that surveyed more than 5,000 Coloradans this year about their experiences with hate crimes. Jeremy Shaver is with the region's Anti-Defamation League and a spokesman for the Hate Free Colorado. He spoke with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. Who is experiencing hate crimes the most in Colorado, and what does that tell us? I think it's important to note that Coloradans of all backgrounds are experiencing hate crimes and bias-motivated incidents. It's not just minority religious populations or minority racial groups. It's Coloradans from all backgrounds, white Coloradans, black and Latino and Asian Coloradans, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic Coloradans. It's Coloradans from all backgrounds, right? There are groups that are more frequently targeted. And so members of racial and ethnic minority groups are one and a half to two times um, as likely as white Coloradans to experience hate crimes. What surprised you about the study's findings? I mean, that's quite a number, 30% of adults. I think what was most surprising is that uh, the number was significantly higher than we realized. And, uh, you know, that three in 10 Coloradans targeted with hate, either a hate crime or a bias motivated incident. And so that's, that's significant, right? You know, there were, there were a lot of comments that we even received from the survey where there were people who actually said they were actively considered considering leaving the state or were already making plans to leave because they they felt like this wasn't the place for them. So how did you reach these findings? I mean, how was the study actually conducted? So there were two methodologies used for this study. There was an SMS text message uh, campaign that that sent surveys out to Coloradans across the state. We used the voter file, and it was a random sample of Coloradans, so that we could reach people of all different types of backgrounds. So, so they're on their phone. On the, on the phone, text message on the phone, and there were more than 3,300 who uh, clicked on the button and took the survey. And then we also distributed online surveys through the Hate Free Colorado Partner Coalitions, and there were about another 1,800 there. So just shy of 5,200 Coloradans in, in general. And, and so continue on with that. You know, what were some of the questions asked? How did people um, you know, respond to some of them? Because, again, it seems like such a big number that people don't know about. 
So the survey really tried to answer two primary questions. One was to get an estimate of the number of incidences of hate crimes and bias incidents happening in Colorado. And the second, to get some information about are people reporting hate crimes, why or why not, and and to whom and what their experiences are. So I know the FBI releases an annual crime report that includes hate crimes. What is the significance of the coalition study and how is it different from the FBI's reporting? Because they're different numbers. So the FBI collects data from law enforcement agencies. So it would be all the different law enforcement agencies in Colorado that said they received a report of a crime that uh, targeted somebody because of their race, ethnicity, religion. And so it's something that's only reported to law enforcement, right? Well, that's one of my questions about reporting and not reporting. Since the FBI statistics that come from police departments, someone goes to that department and says, I have had a hate crime committed against me, that could be a lot of stigma there. And so it seems to me this uh, survey went to the people directly. Is that correct? That's correct. And I think we need to really be honest that many of the populations that are most frequently targeted with hate crimes are also those right now that have the lowest levels of trust and confidence in law enforcement. There are a lot of reasons why people may not report a hate crime. They may English may be not their first language and they don't feel confident. They may you know distrust or have lack of confidence in law enforcement. They f- may fear being retaliated against if they re- report it. And so there's a lot of barriers to, to reporting. And I think we just need to look at how we can um, get rid of some of those barriers. So what's the coalition going to do with these findings? Now that we have this this research, we need to spend a little time going back to community groups, stakeholders, uh, law enforcement agencies to present the findings, kind of get some feedback. Hey, how does this sound? What's surprising to them as well? But we also are making some recommendations. It might be time to look at establishing local or a state hate crime hotline, a non-emergency number that folks can call to report a potential hate crime. We also need to spend some time really looking at what type of training our law enforcement officers in Colorado receive so that they can better understand the indicators of hate crimes, how to handle interviews. And when somebody's gone through a pretty traumatic experience, there are, there are some interview strategies that law enforcement need to practice and put in place. That's Jeremy Shaver with the coalition Hate-Free Colorado and the Anti-Defamation League. He spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. You may find more details on the hate crime study at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Bees mean honey and hives, queens and colonies. Honeybees came to North America from Europe in the 17th century and are important to agriculture as pollinators, especially for non-native crops. But when it comes to native flowering plants, the job is best done by native bees. And Colorado is home to nearly a thousand species. Most are solitary. Each female builds her own nest in a tunnel and works alone to gather pollen and nectar for her young. She lives just four to six weeks during warm weather, then dies. But the larvae she leaves behind will go through the winter encased in cocoons and emerge when it warms up, ready to repeat the cycle. With native bees losing more and more habitat to human development, I-76 was designated as a pollinator highway a few years ago. Gardeners can help too, as native bees live underground, leave some areas without mulch to help them and other beneficial insects. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles. When classes began at Front Range Community College in August, the most excited person on campus probably was not a student. It was also a big first day for new president, Colleen Simpson. She says making an immediate impression was important, but she's hopeful that her long-term vision for the institution will have a lasting impact. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Chandra. 
Let's talk about you going out and greeting students when classes started. I'm not sure any college administrator would be recognized by most of the student body. What were you hoping to accomplish by doing that? Well, one of the things that I like to do is um, I'm a lifelong learner. And I always say to myself, what are the things I'd like to do when I was in college that was not done for me? And I often said, I never knew who the college president was when I attended the City University of New York. And so I made it my goal when I became president at Front Range is to go out and identify myself with the students. And so I walked the hallways, I stopped students, I introduced myself, I said, I'm the new president. I said my name to them, I welcomed them, just wanting to make sure students get to see the face behind the title. And how did the students react to that? Shocked, they were like, are you really <laughs> the president? Um, and I'm like, yes, I am. And I had my name badge on. They were like, wow, this is cool. And I was like, well, thank you. And so that's the impression I want to make with our students. I just want them to know that I'm here for them. We should also note that your appointment is historic. You are the first African-American president of Front Range Community College and the second African-American woman president in the Colorado Community College system. Do either or both of those designations hold any special significance for you? Do you feel like in any way it provides you with some insight or sensitivity of what some of your students may be experiencing? Well, I will tell you, I've always taken my tenure in community colleges to be about breaking down barriers. But more importantly, it's about representation for me. I want students to see me as a, a Black woman and say, this is achievable. Um, here is someone who went through the public, public school system, did her undergraduate at a public university, and always set her sights on achieving more. And so for me, this is about not just only representation, but also a fact that I'm able to model for my black and brown upcoming students that you too can achieve success. I understand you've been keeping a journal chronicling your experience so far at the school. Give us an example of something you've noticed and written about. So one of the things I noticed immediately and, and when I came to Front Range and campuses is that I'm always looking to see, do I feel like I belong? Is there a sense of welcoming and belonging on our campus? And I will say Front Range has done a great job of making sure you feel welcome. There's a lot of pride in ensuring that people feel comfortable. But I also look to see from a cultural aspect because one of the things I'm looking at is our student demographics is changing. And, um, and we're seeing the largest growth in our Latino community right now. And, and so when I walked the hallways of our campus, I was looking to see whether or not could a student see visually that they belong on their campus? Was there anything culturally that would allow them to stop and feel as if they were connecting? And so I'm already working with a team and there's a team already in place at Front Range that is now looking at how can we be more culturally visible to our students? And so I'm happy to be a part of this team and 
add some insights into how we can make our campus feel more culturally responsive. You seem to have a lot of hope and like there's a lot of opportunity in your new role, including when you were walking down the hallway on the Westminster campus. Why do you think others haven't seen the same opportunities? I don't want to say others don't see these same opportunities. I think for me, I have to go back to my core of my why. Why did I choose to become a community college president? And I like to say choose because it's an intrinsic value of mine. Um, At a very early age, I wanted to be a part of making a difference. I wanted to be a part of something that ignite purpose for me. And I got into education, but steered my track towards community colleges because I also realized that when I think about the economic drive of a community, community colleges are at the forefront of that. We are working with students who not only just transfer on to a four-year university, but we're also providing adult learners with the skills to go back out into their communities and to earn livable wages and to contribute to their communities. And so for me, I'm always looking for how do I be a part of helping solving the problem, the greater problem around making our communities better. A little history about you. Before coming to Front Range, you worked at a community college in Wisconsin and prior to that in New York also in the junior college system. Why did you opt to take that path as opposed to, say, the four-year university route? You know, for me, I did an internship when I was at my four-year college, which was at Baruch College. And that internship allowed me to work with first-generation students. I was working as a peer advisor, And I was helping students understand their path and helping them um, find the courses they need and choose their major. And I fell in love with it. And I remember talking to one of my faculty at Baruch College about, I would love to work with students like this all the time. And Mm -hmm. he says, well, sounds like you're going to end up at a community college. And I said, well, I'm going to need your help because I didn't know anything about community colleges once I graduated. And he helped me. He, he was the person who helped me find my first opportunity at Bronx Community College. Um, and then I just fell in love after that. I knew that this was my path in terms of just helping individuals who sometimes don't think college is possible for them or don't even see themselves in college and then giving them that hope to know that they can be successful. And so I've taken that same basic premise throughout my entire career path and have kept that as my why and has gotten me to this opportunity now where I'm looking at things um, from a more strategic perspective and making sure that as our students continue to evolve, we here at Front Range is able to meet students where they are so that success can happen. Give me an example of something that you perhaps implemented in New York or Wisconsin that you'd like to incorporate at Front Range. One of the things I did in Wisconsin that I was really proud of was building strong relationships with industry partners. And so 
one of the things as I'm thinking about my leadership role here at Front Range is how do we ensure that we're not competing with our industry partners? Instead, how do we work together to make sure that we have the best student, but the greatest employee? So one of the things I focused on when I was in Northeast Wisconsin was manufacturing. And so I worked with a company called Schreiber Foods. And we sat down and we talked about how can we diversify our workforce? And one of the things Schreiber recognized was that we had a lot of diverse students coming into the college, but they weren't exposed to some of our high-wage programs, the engineering track or the logistics and manufacturing track. And so I worked with Schreiber to develop scholarships that would be focused on diversity. And those scholarships allow us to recruit students and offer students an opportunity through mentoring and internship and experiential learning at that company. That was really exciting work that I did in Wisconsin. And so one of the strengths that I'm bringing to Front Range is how do we build partnerships with our industry um, companies and leaders so that we can provide opportunities for the adult learners or for anyone who's looking to scale up. Community colleges are often considered the underdogs in the educational world. And you use terms like making sure front range is student ready or that the school provides customer service. That seems to be a shift from the days when community colleges were more like a drop-in, drop-out kind of experience. When did that change and why is it important that it does? I think it's important for us to continue that narrative is because college is for everyone. And so for me, I focus on who are the students who need to come to the community college and how can we ensure their success? And so that's why... I use some of the proven literature around becoming student ready. And being student ready means that you know that your students are going to come to you at different levels of their academic preparedness. But you as an institution, you can build the interventions so that students can be successful. Colleen Simpson, thanks for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Colleen Simpson is the new president of Front Range Community College, which includes three campuses. She is the first black woman to serve in that role. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.